I spoke at a, a university meeting um, a couple of years ago now, an evangelistic talk, and uh, a guy came up to me afterwards, and I chatted with him for quite some time. He was an agnostic, um, and more consistent than, than your average agnostic, but uh, nonetheless, anyway. Um, we spoke for, for some time, and he told me that he had read the Bible, he had read the Quran, he had read Hindu scriptures, he'd read about Buddhism, He'd read about everything. Uh, he'd read his Dawkins. Um, and he said to me, are you telling me that God will condemn me because I'm confused? Because I've read all these things and I just don't know what the truth is. I, I just can't work it out. Are you telling me that God will condemn me because I'm confused? Well, I want you to keep that in mind as we um, look through this issue. I want to make two apologies before I really start. Uh, the first one is uh, apologies for uh, a late night slot for a, what's a reasonably heavy, uh, well I hope it won't be too heavy, but um, a reasonably dense talk um, um, where you will need your brains to try and switch on uh, for a little while. Um, and the second apology is just for the scope of this talk. As I've uh, studied this issue, I, I realise that in fact uh, next year's uh, conference should be the nature of unbelief and conversion. It's a massive topic. It's huge. The Bible's got page after page uh, to speak about it. And so what I'm going to do is very limited, uh, really. We've optimistically titled it The Nature of Unbelief and Conversion. We're probably just going to say mostly in unbelief and, and look at what that is, uh, according to the Bible, though we'll, we'll pass through uh, conversion as we, as we go. Uh, and there's many central themes of, of uh, unbelief that uh, we won't have time to go into. Um, so we're not really going to be looking at God's part in our unbelief, although that's key. We're not really going to be looking at the devil's part in our unbelief, although that's key. Um, what we are going to be looking at mainly is our role in our own unbelief, our responsibility uh, for it. And I think this is an extremely helpful topic for anyone engaged in evangelism. Because uh, you're standing at the front of an evangelistic meeting and you've got in front of you people who currently don't believe that Jesus is Lord. And you want them to. And actually, if we're going to administer the cure for unbelief, then we really need to understand the condition. We need to understand what it is uh, that we're dealing with. And we're going to try and uh, do that um, uh, this evening. Well, I want us to start uh, at the beginning, which is always a good good place to start, in the early chapters of Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis. And in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, of course, we see um, uh, established a key foundation for everything else that we'll learn in the Bible, um, on, on everything really, but particularly for this evening on this topic of, of, of unbelief. We see that God alone is the eternal creator, that he made the world out of nothing, that the world is, is God's. And it, you can't mistake it from Genesis 1 and 2. It carries God's mark. It is God's world. And so when Adam and Eve are created, it's extremely evident to them that this is God's world and that they've got a responsibility to the God who made the world, that he is good and he's to be obeyed. He speaks with them. He's given them a world which uh, speaks of his greatness and his goodness and his perfection. Uh, he gives them commands which are good and right. They're, they're made in his image. Uh, they live in a, a world without sin and without suffering. They're amply provided for. They're, they've got great privileges. They've got an intimate relationship with God. And they're given an intimate relationship uh, with each other. Uh, it seems, doesn't it, at the end of Genesis 2, there's no room here for unbelief. The evidence for God's existence and goodness is absolutely overwhelming. And there's no mistaking it at all. And so you get to the end of, uh, end of Genesis 2 and you think, well, the people we're reading about now, surely, surely, they're not going to become unbelievers. Surely there's no way that unbelief can enter this world. The evidence is overwhelming. And of course, evidence is what we use to decide whether or not we believe something. Well, let's click on to Genesis 3. And so appears the serpent, and he tempts Eve. And what does the serpent do? Well, he offers her a, a pretty lame argument for not trusting God's promises. He tells her a lie. He says that, uh, has God said you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? It's pretty lame as arguments go, because 
Eve knows what God said and she dismisses that. But maybe the devil has just sown a seed of doubt. But Eve corrects him. But then this is the devil's argument. I want us to listen to this very carefully because it's it's very important to us. In verse 4, Genesis 3 verse 4, he says this. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, what does knowing good and evil uh, mean here? Um, Well, in verse 22 of Genesis 3, we see that God agrees with the statement of the devil. He's got that right. Uh, God says, yes, now you do know good and evil. So what does that mean? Well, it becomes clear as we go through uh, the early chapters of Genesis and through the Bible, as we'll see later on, that it's moral autonomy that they've grabbed hold of. Actually, in this world, it is God's prerogative to decide what is good And what is evil? To tell us how we should live. But here, the devil is saying, no, hold on. You can choose that for yourself. You can make the call. You can decide what's good. You can decide what's evil. And of course, that brings disastrous consequences. Because only God's standard is right. And any alternative will be terrible. And so, do you see what the devil's saying? He's saying, look, you don't have to listen to God anymore. You can make your own choices. If you eat it, your eyes will be open to all the things you could do which God isn't letting you do at the moment. Your life will be better and there won't be any judgment. You will not surely die. Do as you please. And so Eve buys it and so does Adam. And we find there, it's on page four of my Bible, the first incident of unbelief in the Bible so early on, in the middle of overwhelming evidence for God's existence and his goodness, Actually, this little incident here will prove to be a a paradigm for unbelief through the whole of Scripture. That even though the evidence may be great, people will still disbelieve. That though they might know their doctrine inside out, they may like the idea of there being a personal God, they might be doers of good deeds, they might be very interested in what we're saying. But people still won't believe. They won't place their trust in the living God. They won't submit to Jesus Christ. We see two things here. The fundamental issue is this. And if you're going to fall asleep later, just remember this. Um, The fundamental issue is that unbelief is a moral problem and not primarily an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem, not primarily an intellectual problem. So it's much more, uh, it's less I can't believe in that. It's more I will not believe in that. I will not. And the other key thing that we see um, in this passage and throughout the Bible is that uh, unbelief is not a narrow category. It's not, it's not atheism we're talking about. It's, it's wrong belief in God. It's false faith. A twisting or a distortion of God's character and his nature. And sometimes, of course, that does lead to atheism, but that's not always the case. We're talking about when people have not placed their trust in God. Well, turn with me now to to Romans 1, please. And we're going to spend um, more time in Romans 1 than any other uh, passage. So do find um, Romans 1. And heeding Justin's earlier advice, I'll wait for you all to find it before I I, I read it. Um, We're going to start at verse 18 of uh, Romans 1. And uh, Paul writes this. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over, in the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, 
who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Well, it's grim reading, isn't it? But that is the society in which we live. That was us before uh, we were converted. Uh, I'm sure that you're familiar with the, the, the context here in Romans 1. Um, in verse 16, Paul has explained that he's, he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. Uh, that in the gospel there's a way that uh, we can receive God's righteousness and be righteous before him. And Paul's going to develop this theme and from verse 18 here and through the middle of chapter 3. He's going to explain why the gospel is necessary, why righteousness is needed. And it doesn't take us very long to find out because it's right there in verse 18. It's the wrath of God. God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. So God is angry because we have rejected him, godlessness. And because of the evil we do to one another, as a result, wickedness. But notice Paul's description of men in verse 18. Men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Why is it that men and women don't follow God? Why is it that they don't turn to God in repentance and faith and ask for his mercy? Why is it that they don't acknowledge this God who made the world? Paul says, it is because we suppress the truth by our wickedness. In chapter 2, Paul would look separately at Jews and Gentiles and how that plays out and, and show that they're both under the wrath of God. But here he's looking at mankind in general. He's not simply addressing the atheist or the Pharisee or the Buddhist or the Muslim or the nominal Christian. He's, express, um, he's addressing all of these people and more. Anyone who doesn't believe in the living God. Anyone who suppresses the truth about God. You see, people may believe in another God or a system or, or something even very close to the biblical God. But unless it is the God of the Bible in who our faith is, this is us. Romans 1. We suppress the truth by our wickedness. Because verses 19 and 20 make it abundantly clear that God has made his existence his eternal power and his divine nature clear to us. They're as clear in creation today as they were in Genesis 1 and 2. That we should not be godless and wicked is clear because God is clearly seen in his creation. The theologian John Frame says this, Those who deny God do so not because they lack evidence but because their hearts are rebellious. Bertrand Russell was uh, once famously said that if he stood before God on Judgment Day, he would say to him, not enough evidence, God. And I wonder if God would reply, I gave you a fully functioning universe and world in which to live in. What more did you want in the way of evidence? Well, let's uh, work through this passage. And it really gives us uh, what you could call an anatomy of unbelief. It tells us the basics there in uh, verses 18 to 20, but it... Paul will pick it apart for us now and show us some more characteristics. So every day, and you can see this in uh, something like Psalm 19, uh, every day the unbeliever is confronted by the world around him. Every day the plain evidence of God's existence and nature stands before him. His accountability to God is writ large 
through the whole of the created order. And every day, the unbeliever chooses to ignore it, to suppress it, to cover it up with sin. Unbelief is a deliberate unwillingness to submit to God. And in particular, in verse 21, a deliberate unwillingness to give him the glory he deserves or to thank him for what he has done. People don't want to do that. We'd rather thank ourselves and glorify ourselves. And the result of this, says Paul, is that their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Another reference you might like to look up in your own time is Psalm 14, which is uh, very powerful about that. Uh, Although they claim to be wise, they are fools. And actually we should expect unbelief to, uh, to affect people's minds to affect their ability to reason correctly because their hearts lead them away to the truth. I'm sure you've come across people who've come up with all kinds of sophisticated arguments for why they don't believe in God. Often they're cleverer than us. They can reason and argue better than we can. They can say things we've no idea what to say in terms of intellectual arguments. They claim to be wise. But Paul says they are foolish. Because they're ignoring what's right in front of their eyes. That God exists. That he's real and that they're accountable to him. And to dismiss that makes all other thinking futile. It just doesn't matter unless we've got that right. I'm sure you've had uh, that experience of someone who you've spoken clearly and you're convinced of that. Other people have understood what you said. They'll come up to you after a meeting and say, I really enjoyed the way you talked about this. And you think, I didn't talk about that. I didn't say anything of the sort. And yet people hear it because their minds are distorted, their hearts are darkened. They don't hear what they don't want to hear. Of course, we need to take responsibility there. It may have been that we were unclear in that situation. We've got to be very uh, careful about that. But it may not have been. I guess it's very common today, uh, you especially find it in the emergent church, to view uh, Christians and non-Christians as all on the same kind of path to truth. And it's just that we're a little bit further on, but they're coming in the same direction as us. And if we can just walk together, we'll learn from them. They'll learn from us. It'll be great. We'll walk together. Paul says the complete opposite. We're going in one direction. We're living for the glory of God. Only by His grace, of course. But we're living for the glory of God. They are doing everything in their power, so that God is not glorified in their lives, so that God does not get the thanks he deserves, that they don't have to follow him. They're walking away. And our role is to take them and to drag them the direction we're going. Verse 23 gives us the result of this. The glory that belongs to God alone is given to something else. Idols, False religion, money, power, reason, Marxism, sex, and so on. Why are there other religions? I don't know if you get asked that question often. I I do, uh, in the university setting particularly. Well, Paul says here, it's because people don't want to believe in the true God. They just don't want to. They don't want to be accountable to God. And so other religions spring up where I can control God or the gods or, or whatever it is. My sacrifice can placate them. My ritual makes them act in the way I want them to. I can be good enough to get to heaven. My sin doesn't really matter. There's not really such a thing as right and wrong. There is no judgment. And so on. We create these ways to suppress the truth. The Bible is clear. The unbeliever is anti-God in heart, soul, strength and mind. And the result is sin. Three times in this passage we read of God giving people over to sin i.e. to the consequences of their rebellion. It's God's judgment on unbelief. You see, if the God of the Bible is not God, people won't listen to him. They won't obey his standards. And in verse 25, people exchange the truth about God for a lie. The creator for the creation. And we see that in many ways today. But I think we see it actually in Richard Dawkins. And as Roger said earlier, he's not our enemy We don't want to uh, pick on him, but I think we see him. If you read his books, evolution is messianic. Uh, It solves every problem in the world. It absolutely does. It comes through clearly in the God delusion. That's what he says. But actually, of course, it's God who explains and controls. 
And so, says Paul, God gives us over to the sexual depravity that is the direct result of not believing in this God. Verse 28 tells us a bit more. Uh, Paul writes, Since they did not consider it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. I don't know if you've ever read a really boring book. I've read a few. Um, And straight after I've read them, I think, I don't want to remember anything I've read in that book. I shut out of my mind. It's gone. Never want to think about it again. Well, that is the unbeliever's attitude to God. It's not worthwhile to retain the knowledge. It's there in creation, but I don't care. I don't want to hear it. Incidentally, just as an aside, this is why outreach is very important and not just in-reach, not just inviting people to our uh, churches. That is important, but many people won't come. They don't think it's worthwhile. We've got to be out there and going to them. And so God gives them over to the appropriate consequences again, a depraved mind. And we read that terrible list of sins that comes in verses 29 to 31. All other sin is the result of unbelief and God's judgment on it. And verse 32 uh, shows us that that unbelief continues in the same vein with regard to our own actions. Paul says it's obvious that when we sin, there's consequences. There's judgment. That's what guilt and, and conscience do, as Paul will develop in the next chapter. But it's ignored. It's not believed, even though it's known. The guard goes up, doesn't it? Surely I, I'm not that bad. I'm not accountable to anyone. I'll do what I like. God won't judge me. What are you talking about? The guard goes up. I.e., we're back to Genesis 3. Uh, Romans 1 explains it in a bit more detail. Uh, unbelief is moral. It's primarily a moral problem. And it denies judgment. We want to be in God's place. Well, we could continue through Romans. Paul keeps up in this uh, vein. 2 verse 5, Paul explains that unbelieving hearts are stubborn and unrepentant. 2 verse 8, the unbeliever is self-seeking, rejects the truth and follow evil. Uh, 2 verses 17 to 29, even the Jew who knows the law doesn't see the truth behind the truth, as it were. And in 3 uh, 9 to 18, we get the conclusion of all this. Uh, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. And verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And that's the ultimate issue. We can believe in some sort of God, but if we don't fear this God, We don't really believe it. It's nothing to us. Well, there's uh, Romans 1, uh, an anatomy of of unbelief, as I say. We'll spend less time. We're going to pick through a few other passages, but we'll we'll go through them much more briefly. Um, And we see that people do not believe because they don't want to. They want to sin instead. That's the opposite. John Stott puts it like this. It's not just that they do wrong, though they know better. It is that they have made an a priori decision to live for themselves, rather for God and others, and therefore deliberately stifle any truth which challenges their self-centeredness. So Genesis 3 and Romans 1, I think, give us a basis on which to work, a basis of what unbelief is, and we're just going to nuance it, as I say, with a few passages uh, now. So turn with me to John chapter 3, please. John chapter 3. And um, I'll just read from verses 16 to 21 in John 3. Uh, John writes this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, and will not come into the light, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God's. Well, there's many uh, central themes in that, really, which 
uh, the central themes of, of Romans 1, but it adds in a bit more detail for us, John 3. In particular, in Romans 1, uh, what's obvious is uh, God's divine nature and his eternal power, i.e. God's kind of godness, his power and our accountability to him. Uh, it's not the gospel. Nobody ever understood the gospel by kind of glancing up at, uh, at the night sky or anything like that. Um, what's going on is that we've rejected God's witness in creation, but that God lovingly sends us another witness, his final word, his final revelation, Jesus Christ and his gospel. Uh, A witness, of course, which needs speaking about and explaining, which is what we're doing in the work of evangelism. But what we'll see in Romans, uh, John 3 rather, is that the reasons people have for rejecting Jesus or for not believing in him after they've had him explained are the same as those in Genesis 3 and Romans 1. Well, the image in uh, verses 17 to 18, um, uh, the image is something along these lines, that we're in a a burning building and Jesus' death and resurrection is like a a rope being lowered down uh, to the window, which we can take or not take. Uh, We need to take it if we're going to be saved. If not, we'll be left to suffer the condemnation, uh, in this case, that, that we deserve. That's the point of the word already in verse 18. So we sit under condemnation, as we've seen, for rejecting uh, God, who's, uh, who is obvious to us. And only faith in Jesus can save us from it. And this whole concept is uh, often seen as unfair or wrong-headed. I, I don't want to pick on Richard Dawkins, but let me just quote you him again. Um, uh, he, he writes in The God Delusion, Surely what God wants from us is goodness. Not belief. I don't see why God is so obsessed with us believing in him. That's what he writes. But verses 19 to 21 answer this point very strongly indeed. That the reason that we do not believe is that we love our sin. So unbelief actually is a very good standard of judgment. Again, unbelief is a moral problem and not fundamentally an intellectual one. And so John writes that the verdict is that because we love sin, we resist Jesus. We refuse to believe in him because if we come close to God, we will see how worthless and sinful we are. And so rather than running to Jesus, we hate him. It's uh, it's interesting that uh, whereas Westerners often don't like to hear the gospel because it convicts them of guilt, quite often for, for Asians it's that it convicts them of shame. And actually you find both of them here uh, in John 3. Um, they're both uh, results there. Now, just as an aside here, I hear a lot of gospel presentations, I'm sure you hear them too, where the central premise is that all non-Christians must be really unhappy with their lives. Now, there's doubtless some truth in that, in that the joy that God gives is greater than anything the world can give. They can never be as happy as we can be. But it's wrong to say that all non-Christians are necessarily unhappy. Some are, of course, but... Verse 19 says that men love the darkness until the Holy Spirit starts to work in us. We love our sin. Why would anyone be unhappy doing what they love day in, day out? Of course, it does lead many people to be unhappy, but it's not a good central premise. Anyway, of course, the same light which unbelief flees from here in John 3 is also the answer to unbelief. And so in John 8, verse 12, John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So telling people about Jesus, which is what we're doing when we do evangelism, will always issue in one of two responses. Now these responses might not be immediate, they might be worked out over uh, days, years, uh, who knows, but there's one of two responses for people. Either they'll flee the light, or they'll come to the light. And we've got to be very careful that we present the light, that we don't dumb it down so nobody flees. Because if we put it to that level, then no one will come to it either. Because they'll have missed what it's all about. You get a a similar idea in uh, 2 Thessalonians 2. We won't look at this in depth really, but in 2 Thessalonians um, 2, uh, we notice a number of things. We notice the... um, Uh, The the process of condemnation which comes upon unbelievers, that uh, Satan deceives the the perishing, 
They perish because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. And so God sends them a powerful delusion uh, to bind them over uh, to the lie and be condemned. See, God's judgment on refusal to love the truth is to give people over to their unbelief. And actually we see that, don't we, in practice. It's never, of course, our uh, role to, to make that judgment on anyone, whether that's uh, the case or not. But we see it, don't we? There's people who've been very, very interested but, but won't commit. Quite often they gradually begin to, to drift away until suddenly they're not interested anymore at all. They don't care. Their hearts are hardened. They're bound over because they refuse to love the truth. They refuse to do it. In verse 12 of 2, um, 2 Thessalonians 5, we see the contrast between uh, the, the, the contrast is not between righteousness and wickedness, which we might expect. It's not between belief and unbelief. It's between believing the truth on one hand and delighting in wickedness on the other hand. Those are the opposites that we're working with in evangelism. It's believing the truth and uh, delighting in wickedness, which confirms what we've uh, already seen. But notice also this. Uh, in verses uh, uh, 10 and 12, believing the truth is equated with loving the truth. Um, real belief is loving the truth. Many come to an intellectual assent to Christianity, but never become Christians. Why? Because they see the truth, but they don't love it. They resist it. And it's a truth that needs loving, isn't it? We've got an amazing gospel that saves us from this depth of unbelief, that saves us from this terrible sin that we're in, that saves us for eternal life, that saves us from judgment into a relationship with God for all eternity. It's a truth that needs to be loved, and yet people won't love it. Jesus is Lord is a, is a wonderful truth. He's the good shepherd. But people won't love it. They don't want Jesus to be Lord. They just don't. And we see that in Romans 1. Now, of course, uh, we will get, uh, again, we'll get two reactions. Some people, as we present the truth, will come to love it and respond to it. And that's why we should be proclaiming the truth as great as it is, showing the splendor of the Lord Jesus and of the gospel, that they might run to it. We do need to be aware that others will flee it they don't want to believe it. Well, I want us to think for, a, for just for a moment really about uh, overcoming unbelief um, from what we have seen so far and from John 16 where we're going to see the, uh, the role of the Holy Spirit which I think will be um, helpful for us. We've kind of seen what unbelief is like and we want to see the cure here because the situation seems pretty uh, hopeless actually at this stage, doesn't it? Okay, so people don't believe because they don't want to believe. No amount of evidence by itself will convince them. Uh, and they're delighting in their sin. It seems pretty hopeless, doesn't it? Uh, there's no hope for us. Unless God is at work. And we'll read about that in John 16. So turn to John 16 with me, please. And I'll start reading at verse 5. Uh, this is Jesus speaking. And he says, Now I am going to him who sent me, Yet none of you asks, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counsellor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Well, of course, it is the Holy Spirit who ultimately turns unbelieving hearts into hearts that love the truth. And we see it wonderfully in this passage. Uh, Jesus is speaking to distressed disciples. He's given them what seems like an impossible task. He said, look, I'm off. Uh, they don't really get it, but they're grieved by it. He's just told them a few verses earlier, uh, you may well be martyred for talking about me. Uh, they're worried about being left alone. But then in verse 7, Jesus says, hold on, this is for your good that I'm going away. It's for your good, because then the Holy Spirit will come. Unbelief looks powerful. The massed forces of non-Christians look 
powerful. They look massive. As I said, they're often cleverer than us and sometimes more well thought through. But Jesus tells us, tells his disciples here and us too, that we have on our side an awesome weapon. The Holy Spirit will be with us as we take the gospel to the world. He will do what we cannot do as we do what we can do. So what does he do? Well, we see that the Holy Spirit's role is to make people feel guilty. Well, it doesn't seem that powerful a weapon, does it really, on on first inspection? Until we remember the problem we've just been thinking about. If unbelief is a moral problem, then the first step for people to turn back to God will be guilt. It'll be realising that what they're doing is wrong. It's wrong to suppress the truth. It's wrong to ignore God. It's wrong to be wicked. And suddenly there's hope. Because the gospel is the answer. And so we see that the Spirit convicts in three areas with regard to sin, righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in Jesus. And we've seen that this is the essence and and in some ways the worst of all sins. To reject God to reject his king, to refuse to love him and his gospel. And we've seen that people don't want to believe in Jesus because he threatens their moral autonomy. But when the Spirit gets to work, they realise that this is sin, that it is wrong not to follow Jesus as Lord, that it's wrong not to worship this God and thank him and glorify him. The Spirit convicts with regard to righteousness because Jesus has gone to the Father. Well, who can go to God? Only righteous people who can stand before God. And so who sets the standard of righteousness? It's Jesus. Because he has gone to the Father. People that I speak to, non-Christians, generally, and sometimes Christians too, sadly, generally think that they're they're pretty good people. That they're alright. They'll get into heaven when they die. They're okay. They'll never hurt people. But when the Spirit gets to work, they realise that the bar is not Hitler. uh, It's not somebody just a bit worse than them. The bar is Jesus. He's the standard of righteousness. And they begin to feel guilty for their pride, their lust, their selfishness. And they realise it will keep them out of heaven. Incidentally, this is another reason why godly living is such a key part of our witness. Because the Spirit may use this to convict others of righteousness. And finally, with regard to judgment, because the the devil now stands condemned. If the devil is condemned when Jesus dies on the cross, then so are all those who follow in his ways. There is a judgment to come. And we will receive the full force of it if we hold to the devil's lies, as we saw in Genesis 3, uh, rather than loving the truth. And so we see the need, as the Spirit gets to work, to turn from our sin and ask for salvation. Well, I just want to draw out one or two more things and then I'm going to quickly apply this to us and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll finish. The words at the end of chapter 15 in verses 26 and 27 read this. Uh, When the counsellor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. Uh, This is how evangelism works. Uh, We work and the spirit works. Um, RVG Tasker uh, writes this. Uh, The witness of the advocate and the witness of the apostles are in effect a single witness. And the testimony of the eyewitnesses of the ministry of Jesus, given under the inspiration of the Spirit, is of paramount and permanent importance. For the apostles are the sole link between all subsequent believers and the historic Christ. You see, we are to testify in line with what the Spirit testifies about. We're to to keep in step with the Spirit. If his role is to convict the world of guilt in regard to sin, righteousness and judgment, if that's what they need to overturn their unbelief, then John writes that we should testify too. And we should testify about sin, righteousness and judgment. We should talk about the truth about God as creator and therefore sovereign of this world as the very truth that they're suppressing. We should talk about it. The fact of Jesus' life, death and resurrection, especially in their Old Testament context, we should talk about, because it will convict them of their unbelief. Uh, Jesus is Lord. 
we need to talk about. And so if we want to administer the cure for unbelief, we must proclaim Christ as Lord, the one who God has given all authority. We must present Jesus as he is in his sinless perfection. Uh, speaking of his character, his resurrection, his, his ascension perhaps. About the standards that he sets for righteousness by his life and words. That is, we must talk about Christ and about sin. So that the Spirit might convict people uh, with regard to righteousness. That they might know their righteousness as filthy rags before God and cry out for a saviour. And of course we must speak of the cross and of the coming judgment, so that the Holy Spirit might convict them of that judgment, and that they might flee it into the arms of Christ. If unbelief is, a primary, uh, is primarily a moral problem, and if the Spirit convicts of guilt in these areas, then I trust for us as evangelists to administer the cure. We must focus on preaching the gospel in its full biblical context. For this is the power of God, for the salvation of all who believe. Uh, uh, Many people have said that conscience is the evangelist's friend. And so it is. Because that's uh, where the Spirit gets to work as we preach of Christ. And so we must speak about him if we want people to be saved. Well, a few quick applications before we close. Uh, One, humility and gratitude. Um, This is where we were. This is where you and I were. We mustn't lord it over as though we've kind of made a better choice than them. Uh, This is where we were too. And gratitude to God, he rescued us from this uh, while we were still sinners. Sinners like that who resisted him. Christ died for us. And humility also because it's not our intelligence which will ultimately lead anyone to Christ. And I hope that keeps us from kind of arguing with non-Christians to show our intelligence. To show that we're more well thought out than them. Application two, compassion. The unbeliever is stuck away from God in desperate need of Jesus Christ. The remedy is in our hands so that by the Spirit's power people may return to God. Compassion. Prayer, of course. If we need the Spirit to be at work, well, let's pray. If it was purely an intellectual problem, we wouldn't need to. We could just read a lot, be quite clever, get in some philosophers and they'd sort it out for us. But it's not. It's a problem of the heart. We need to pray. Uh, Fourthly, um, uh, the need to be guided by Scripture. I think this is very key here. Uh, We've seen that sin distorts our reason and leads to untruth. And although we're forgiven and free from the slavery of sin, uh, we still sin. Or or at least I I do, at least. Uh, And any evidence or argument that we want to bring forward, uh, we've got to submit it to Scripture. Or, or, Or we might find ourselves going wrong. You see, if it's truth that's being suppressed, we must make sure that we're preaching truth to counter it, uh, to counter unbelief and not be led astray. And uh, Can I encourage you to have confidence in the Bible? This is the power through the Spirit. Have confidence in preaching from the Bible uh, to win unbelievers. Because in here, it tells us the truth they're suppressing. And uh, fourthly and finally... um, uh, application. I'll spend a little bit longer on this one than I, I do promise that we'll close. Um, and it's this: it's our use of apologetic arguments. Now, there's not time here for me to go uh, massively into uh, into this, and I wouldn't be appropriate here. But I think we do learn a few lessons from what we've seen, because as we've seen, the problem of unbelief is not simply a head problem. To quote John Frame again, uh, he says this: the unbeliever's problem is first ethical and only secondarily intellectual. His intellectual problems stem from his ethical unwillingness to acknowledge the evidence. Unbelief distorts human thought. So although presenting evidence is good, and we should do it as the Bible encourages us to do so, we're not presenting it against a sort of neutral background. The people will sit down and think, yes, okay, I can see that's reasonable. That's not the background we've got. The background is what we've just been looking at, suppressing the truth. So somewhere along the line, as we present evidence, we must point them to the truth that they're suppressing. And often it's appropriate to point out that they're suppressing it, I think. And as we present evidence, it must be bringing to light God's character, human sin, and pointing onwards to Jesus Christ. So evidence is not uh, by itself enough. As we've seen from Adam and Eve, the evidence is all around us, and from Romans 1. It's there, it's staring us in the face every day. 
And countless times in the Bible, people have reams of evidence but choose to ignore it. The Israelites in the wilderness. In the Gospels, we find soon after Lazarus has been raised from the dead, these words. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. And we find Jesus rebuking uh, them for it in, in strong words. In John 5, verses 31 to 47, Jesus points out the many testimonies that his hearers have had. Human testimony, the scriptures, Jesus. But they won't believe. Why not? Well, Jesus tells us. It's because they care what man thinks. Not what God thinks. And Jesus rebukes them for it. And verses 45 to 47 of that chapter reveal that they don't need further explanation of of the scriptures. They just won't believe it. And so Jesus rebukes them. And I think there is a time after evidence has been clearly presented and the gospel explained to uh, lovingly but firmly tell people that they are suppressing the truth. When they're saying, I just need a bit more evidence. You know, you've all heard it. If this table would, would float off the ground, I'd believe in God. Rubbish. Lazarus was raised from the dead, they didn't believe in God. There's a time for telling them that that is the case. And uh, hopefully leading them towards conviction in that way. And we generally, um, just a quick word on approach here, we generally find, not always, but generally in the Bible, that the more evidence people have, the more they know about God, the more forceful the challenge put to them is. When people know uh, next to nothing, we find generally the apostles, Jesus, are, are much more gentle in their approach. But the more they know, the more forceful the challenge is. Well, I'll leave you to prayerfully figure out how that works in practice. Um, but suffice to say that the Bible has no one-size-fits-all approach to talking with unbelievers. In Isaiah 44, we find God doing what we now call apologetics. He's picking apart the world view of idolatry. Um, but what God is doing, and I'd encourage you to look at this chapter later, it's very powerful. What God is doing is um, presupposing his own character. And he shows the folly of idolatry, not just in itself, but against that backdrop. And as he does so, he's convicting them of sin and pointing them to himself. Yes, he's exposing the inconsistency, but also its sinfulness, so they might come to him. To him. Let me quickly draw an analogy, and then I, I promise I will... Finish, yeah. Um, I, I think apologetics work, works a little bit uh, like this. That unbelief is like the foundations of a building. And ultimately, that's what needs uh, ripping up. But because of our unbelief, we want to justify it. And so we begin to build on these foundations and build up kind of intellectual arguments uh, all over the place. Uh, until we've got kind of a, a castle built up on the foundations of unbelief. Uh, and this may appear in all kinds of different systems and, and false religions that... Uh, that people believe in. And sometimes, you know, knocking down those bricks makes it easier to get to the foundations. Uh, just to pick apart little bits. But actually, if we can get the foundations down, the rest of it will come anyway. Uh, that's the power of the gospel. But it knocks unbelief, and the whole castle comes falling down. And actually, as bits of the gospel are presented, it might be that you get a bit of the foundations, and you get the whole east wing down in one go. The preaching the gospel works, and it works uh, alone. There is a place for beginning by knocking down a few bricks, getting a hearing. But the gospel is the power. The foundations are what needs ripping up. And 1 Corinthians 1 verse 17 comes to mind, doesn't it? For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul goes on to explain that Those to whom the cross ultimately seems foolish are those who are perishing. Some will reject it, but not because there's not enough evidence, but because they don't want to believe it. Some will be convinced. And in verse 25 of the same chapter, Paul writes this, For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. This means that if we want to administer the cure for unbelief, We need to be prepared to look foolish in the eyes of worldly wisdom. When I stand up to do a university talk, I want to look clever. That kind of comes to me as a temptation. I think, well, I've got a degree in maths. I'll stand up here and and it's from quite a good university. I didn't work very hard, so I didn't get a good grade. They don't need to know that. Um, And uh, I'll stand up here and, and look intelligent. But actually, I need to be prepared to look a fool if I want to rip up those foundations of unbelief because the power is in the gospel. Let me close with a with a story. 
I was chatting with a uh, with a girl once, uh, a Christian girl, um, been a Christian for some time, uh, going to a good university with a good CU, involved in a good uh, local church, and we were just chatting about evangelism, and she said to me this, oh, I don't think I can do evangelism because I'm just not clever enough. I, I never know what to say. And I asked myself, well, where have we got to if we say somebody's not clever enough to do evangelism? Have we lost all our faith in the power of the gospel? Because that's where we get to if we say that unbelief is primarily an intellectual problem and not a moral one. It means that uh, this girl that I met, uh, if that was the case, could hold up her hand and say, well, I can't do it. But actually the power's in the gospel. And we were able to say to her, do you know the gospel? Yeah. Great. There you go. You can do evangelism. Because the power is there. Actually, the, the gospel is the cleverest thing you can say. If you want to overwhelm the world's wisdom, that's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians uh, uh, 1. The gospel's cleverer than it. Because it's the thing that can rip up the unbelief, uh, which is the foundations. And so in everything we do as evangelists, we must be pointing towards the gospel. There'll be different approaches for different people. Some people have a lot more groundwork to do in terms of uh, establishing the truth that uh, uh, Romans 1, Genesis talks about. But nonetheless, it's the gospel that is the power to save all of those who will believe. And they will believe as the Holy Spirit works in them as we preach. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, we praise you that you have saved us from unbelief. Lord, thank you you've saved us and turned our hearts from delighting in wickedness to loving the truth. Lord, and help us to love it even more. Lord, to love the truth so much that not only do we uh, rejoice uh, in it and thank you for it and glorify you for it, but that we will uh, get up and and go out with this truth, confident that the gospel uh, is your power for salvation, confident it's the means that you will use, uh, confident that unbelief can be overturned by the Holy Spirit. And dear Lord, would your spirit be at work in this barren nation? And, and in Poland too, we, we pray, Lord, which is, um, which is also in many ways uh, so barren, Lord, to overturn unbelief and to bring salvation uh, to many. Lord, guide us as we uh, speak to people that we would uh, be biblical and faithful. And Lord, work through us that we might see much fruit and rejoice all the more. Amen.